Hey everyone, you're about to hear a recording of our live show from July, recorded at Cold Sedek at the Cavalry Center for Culture and Community in West Philadelphia. This is also our goodbye episode. After a year of speaking our truths and hearing our stories, Kaddish is going on a hiatus. The episodes will still be available online, but there won't be anything new coming out for the foreseeable future. I am so deeply grateful for the community of listeners Kaddish has formed and the profound conversations I've gotten to have with so many of you. Thank you for opening your hearts to this project. May the memory of all of our loved ones be for a blessing. So episode eight, final episode, featuring interviews with Evie Newman and Chris Bartlett, the music of Dan Blacksburg, Evan Corey Levine and Rachel Winsberg, the poetry of Noor Jaber. Recorded in the steamy black box theater, picture yourself seated next to 50 other Kaddish fans and listeners. audience. I don't know if you've ever experienced a studio audience before, but it's very exciting. Um, so if you're if you are here live, I'm so grateful that you're here. If you are listening far into the future, hello from the past. Uh, and if you are watching on the internet, hello internet. Um, so I, I want to say first of all thanks to Colt Sedek for hosting us at the Cavalry Center for Culture and Community. Um, we are cozy in the basement and the one's not too hot. Um, but we are down here in the basement celebrating the first season of Kaddish. So, uh, so this year we've had nine episodes. They've been heard almost 7,000 times. Um, it's weird when we do math and we realize, right? It's a lot of, a lot of listens. Um, we've had over 20 guests, a lot of whom might actually be here. If I've interviewed you and you've been on Kaddish, can you raise your hand? Hey! Okay! Uh, and uh, we've also had uh, guests like poetess and author Dr. Joy Layden, sex educator and deaf doula Megan Andiu, organizer and preacher Pastor Naomi Leapheart, Washington Leapheart. We've had rabbis, we've had artists, we've had groundskeepers, academics, we've had hospice nurses, and we also had the people who made the mushroom burial soup at Koryo. Uh, it has been an incredible year of hearing your stories, of connecting with listeners who shared stories of their loved ones, uh, folks who are seeking ritual, who are seeking permission to tell our own stories um, and to, to find space for grief and looking for company to walk alongside them on the path of grief and loss. So what may be brought you here tonight is intellectual, but I also imagine there's a piece of it that's of the heart. So um, I have up here a Yisker candle, a memorial candle. Uh, and in a moment, I'd like to light it uh, to honor all the stories that we've heard of people who have died over a first season of Kaddish, um, and also to honor the people that you might have brought with you, that have, might have compelled you to come here today, losses you've experienced in your life. So take a moment with me, if you will, and draw those people close, names you know, names that you can't remember or haven't learned yet.
in, in their honor. Uh, let's talk a little. So um, this moment from episode seven, which came out at the beginning of May, called Calling All Dear Ones, is a moment in particular that really stays with me. So in this clip, which you're about to hear, I'm talking with Meryl about their beloved high school friend and what it meant when she died so suddenly. as much as it is the memories themselves. 
There is so much left unsaid. So much we did not talk about with Kaddish this season. So many voices we've yet to hear talk about grief and death and mourning. So Kaddish, the podcast, is our placeholder. It's our form. It's not all the words themselves. This is a Kaddish, a stake in the ground. It can remind us that the stories in your heart, the ones that you carry on your back every day, should be told and deserve to be heard. So tonight, we mark a year of the form, calling out loud to one another and talking about death and saying that it's necessary. We'll hear from some amazing, incredible guests, some musicians, which we've already gotten to hear from, and a poet. In a few weeks, this will come out as episode eight, which is the last of season one. And after that, Kaddish will go on a hiatus, uh, but our conversations will certainly, certainly continue. Obviously, not interviewing a lot of people who've gone through the Sahara process. Your podcasts become very famous if you could pull that off. So I love that because that's Joy Layden, Dr. Joy Layden, saying that there's no way to interview someone from Beyond the Dead. So maybe that's what will bring back season two. Um, so uh, until that happens, um, it is my pleasure to invite up our first guest of the evening, uh, Evie Newman. Uh, so let's hear it up for Evie Uh So, it is my pleasure to tell you a little bit about Evie. Evie is an artist, curator, and independent researcher from Athens, Greece. She held the position of exhibitions manager and designer at the Modern Museum of the College of Physicians of Philadelphia from 2009 to 2016. Uh, during this time, Evie organized, designed, and installed multiple exhibitions at the Modern Museum, as well as curated their, curated their contemporary medicine-themed art shows. Her museum photography has been published in numerous outlets, including the Wall Street Journal, the New York Times, and the Guardian. She's the founder and curator of photography.com, an <laughs> online exhibition of contemporary morning art and writing, and is currently working as a death doula and hospice volunteer. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. It's an honor to be here. So to say Modern Museum in Philadelphia is a known quantity, it's something that people go, oh, oh, the Modern Museum, yes. Um, and I'm curious, for people who aren't familiar with the Modern Museum, could you speak a little bit about what it is and what you did there? Sure. Um, the Mutter is a museum of anatomy and pathology. Um, it's uh, probably the most well-known uh, medical history museum in the United States. Uh, it's a 19th century time capsule, uh, but it's also a 21st century uh, cutting-edge research institution um, as of fairly recently and it's a large collection over 17,000 objects I believe of medical instruments, um, human remains, anatomical and pathological specimens, models uh, for education and most of the collection dates to the 19th century. Um, most of it is also local to Philadelphia. Uh, what what brought you to the Mütter Museum? <laughs> uh, what, why did you start working there? Well, um, I visited the Mütter 
I think in 2002 mm-hmm. for the first time. And I did not visit since then till 2009. And the reason for that is I was so taken with being there that I was devastated by the fact that I didn't work there. (laughs) So I waited till I had enough in my resume or toolkit to um, apply for a volunteer position. Um, And they hired me, so that was fantastic. Um, But I've always had a fascination with the human body and with death. I was the weird kid um, that had elaborate graves for their pet goldfish or whatnot. Um, So it just, it was a kind of a natural fit. (laughs) And probably, I definitely felt like home, it still feels like home. Um, It was absolutely an amazing time to work there. Mm -hmm. And now your work is as a death leader. Right, I took about a year of the break to figure out what I wanted to do with my life in a sense. And of course, you know, what else would you want to do with your life other than um, death? <laughs> um, so I volunteered at two hospices locally. Um, and through that, I meet with patients and their families and help them go through the process of dying in a way that's conscious, um, aware, and more comfortable. Um, A lot of what I do has to do with educating people with Mm -hmm. what is normal, Mm -hmm. what is part of the natural process of dying, to kind of uh, dispel their fears. Um, We know so much about birth. Right? We know what labor is like, sort of, even if we haven't had children. Um, we know about conception, but we know so very little about what our body does to die. And our bodies know how to die, even when they're riddled with a terrible disease like cancer. Um, it's all part of the process, and educating families on what is going to happen with your loved one. How is their appetite going to change? How is their um, physical appearance or their breathing um, will change during this process is just such a huge relief for people to say, oh, I don't have to do some medical intervention to help them. They're not necessarily uncomfortable they are able to breathe, but they're breathing a different rhythm than me. And that's not something to be scared by or uh, alarmed. Mm-hmm. So much of, of the dual work that you just described is about working with families as well. Mm-hmm. Um, what about the work that you do with the people themselves? Mm-hmm. So a lot of it has to do with just being present. Um, I usually, at my hospice work, uh, I work in a unit um, downtown. It's a special kind of intensive care unit uh, for the people that either don't have families and have no place to go or no caretakers. 
um, or the people that require just a little bit of extra care for their pain management. Um, pain is one of the biggest issues in the dying. It's with cancer, it can be very hard to manage, and you might need um, more care than other uh, terminal illnesses. Um, so what I do is go to the unit um, and talk to the nurses, the hospice nurses, and say, hey, which person has no family like here tonight? Which person is alone? Um, and I prioritize those people, and I go there. If the per person is conscious, I introduce myself. I kind of always introduce myself, regardless of whether the person is responsive, because there is, a, first of all, a, a sense of respect. I'm coming into their space. So I'm saying, hey, I'm Evie, I'm a hospice volunteer. Would you mind if I sit with you to keep you company? And even if they don't respond, I kind of try to get a sense of the room and their disposition as much as I can. I'm no mind reader, of course, but there have been cases where I feel, oh, maybe I'm intruding. Maybe they want to be left alone. Um, that's totally valid, too. So if I feel welcome enough, I will sit next to them. And for example, if there is uh, a Bible or some religious text on their nightstand, I will read from it. If there is a text that they have pre-selected, a lot of times people leave bookmarks in their Bible or Quran or um, uh, Torah or whatever have you. Um, and if there is no such thing, and I still feel that they need uh, a verbal presence, then I'll read poetry. Um, in some cases, I just sit there, hold their hand, and just be present. Uh, I'm an atheist, so I don't pray. Um, but just the feeling of another human being being in this uh, very profound space with you, I think can be very comforting. I've seen it be very comforting. Um, so the things that I do are very physically simple. Um, I'm not doing anything to do with medical interventions. I don't administer food or, or uh, medicine or anything of that sort. Um, but I just make sure that they're, they know there's someone there. And I know you're developing resources specifically for people who are in the dying process or the family uh, of the dying who are atheists because there actually isn't a lot of content in chaplaincy, especially hospice chaplaincy, that works with the heart and mind and, and doesn't presuppose a sense of faith. Absolutely. Um, that was one of the struggles I had early on in this work that I would come there and I felt like I had to say something that was hinting at um, maybe a next stage or um, like what is what the promise of where you're right, going? Exactly, uh -huh. something to comfort them that wasn't, um, I guess, that had to do with faith or, and I didn't know how to approach that because unless I'm given uh, a guide that this person is religious and I should read from this text, which, you know, if, if that's what comforts them, of course, that's the first thing I'm going to do. Um, 
But when I didn't have a guide, I felt like I had to say something that was mantra-like or prayer-like. So I turned to poetry, um, usually poetry that is transportive, uh, that has to do with uh, nature or um, that can create a visual image in, in their uh, head, perhaps. Mm -hmm. um, I also do uh, guided visualizations where I just kind of guide the dying through a scene. Um, if I have enough information, it would be something like, you know, their favorite place. Generally speaking, I just found that there wasn't a, any sort of guidance mm -hmm. for atheists. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm still working on that. I think poetry and art and music are the way to go. Um, but it's kind of it's kind of difficult. And part of it has to do with not having rituals that are connected to a faith. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Something that's so fascinating to me, we've talked about this before, is the um, the surge in the death positive movement, which you can probably define better than I can. Um, the surge in this movement of organizations and educators thinking and talking about death without fear, without distance, but what else would you add to the definition of death positive? Um, it's a case, in some cases it means talking about death with humor. Hmm. Um, just kind of dispelling the mystique of it hmm. while still being respectful. Hmm. It's a fine line and I think sometimes it's okay if you end up being too humorous or too humorless. I mean, mm. it's not the sort of thing that you can really have a recipe for, sure. but the uh, main focus of it is to talk about it. Mm -hmm. Talk about it even in an awkward, troubled way. Mm. Um, in a hot, stuffy basement in Philadelphia, for example. <laughs> <laughs> I hope like, we're not awkward or troubled right now, but it's possible. <laughs> <laughs> So within that movement, what's been really interesting to me and the more I've learned about it and participated in it is how many young women are at the core of that work. That um, the, the leaders in the, the content making and the, the creation, the volume of, of data and what to play with and use um, are so many young women. Um, and so I'm, it's just like a question I have is what is it about um, a demographic that feels drawn, and also like, there's a lot of people doing this work. But when you think of positive, you think certain faces. There's always like a blunt, dark bang, right? And like, you know, that's why I didn't do that. <laughs> <laughs> I, I struggled. With it. I'm like, damn it, everyone's doing. <laughs> you, look, you look very cute with the blunt bang, but uh, but but there's a there's an aesthetic, and there's a there's a set of people that are often drawn to it. Um, what's up with that? What do you make of it? Why are all these young chicks hanging out around coffins. <laughs> I mean, why not? Why wouldn't you? <laughs> <laughs> They're comfortable. They, they could be really comfortable. <laughs> uh, no, I haven't actually studied one, but I'm all for it. Um, so, you know, I've been wondering about that too, and I don't want to fall into going to stereotypes and saying, oh, women are more caring and so forth. Um, I would love to see a survey of this, and I'm actually working on uh, survey questions to 
distribute to people in the death positive movement, and frankly, to anyone who's interested in talking about that. Um, but part of it might have to do with perhaps seeing um, a female relative do this kind of work. Uh, from in the past, it always kind of has fallen to women to um, do the death work. And the, the death work by the bedside especially. So most of the hospice nurses I've met are women. I actually have never met a male hospice nurse, but you know, this is anecdotal evidence. Um, so I think there is, okay, so the, the real answer is I don't know. Yeah, that's a great answer. And and I, I hear you not wanting to be reductive about the huge plethora of people that are actually like doing this really yeah. important holy work. Um, um and um and also there's just a there's a, a strand that runs through it that I'm curious about. Um and the other thing that feels really hard is the way that um if that is a picture that we see, like what does sex have to do with it? Because I, there's a, um, a fear I had going into this project was um, objectifying death. Talking about this experience that um, we think about every day, that we are isolated by or deeply seeking resources for, and fetishizing it, and making it a thing that is like interesting and morbid, and um, as someone that has a hard time with photo shoots in graveyards, um, as a Jew, that feels hard for me, but maybe have, like other folks with a similar experience don't have that. Um, but like not turning it into like a cool, gothy, weightless idea. Mm -hmm. um, and, and I wonder if there's a, a way in which there's a sexualization that happens. Um, when we talk about death a lot, that comes from, that comes from fear and distancing. Mm -hmm. um, I'm curious your thoughts, I know we've spoken about it before. I mean, I really like this question. Uh, part of me says that if that's your way of processing it, that can be a good uh, start-ish. Uh, I have no, I mean, I'm a goth, let's face it. <laughs> so that I definitely, uh, I'm attracted to the less uh, serious part of that, the more like, let's hang out in the graveyards. Um, I mean, I haven't done a photo shoot on my grave. I bet, I bet it would be great. I just, I offer it as an example. Um, but it's, it's a great question. I think sex and violence are, are ways for our culture to really address those questions because they are attractive. Um, and there is definitely a long history of sexualizing that, I think. I mean, even in Pompeii, um, even in murals uh, found in Pompeii, you'll see that kind of sexual imagery and death imagery in the same space. Mm -hmm. uh, so I, I think it all goes back to being human. It's we have the the death, um, the death urge and the sex urge and the the death wish. Um, and the sex instinct, and all these kind of things go back to the body and mm. how we try to process it. Mm. Um, but I'm gonna think more about that. I I think it's a great question. It's a very Freudian reading of like what bodies do, right? Like they want to move towards sex and death. It's it's a way of bringing it back to your own experience. Mm. 
I mean, we can all really relate to what it's like to die, because when you do, you're dying. Um, generally. <laughs> but you know what I mean? Yeah. We just try, our frames of reference are have to do with our appetites. Mm -hmm. So so around that, the appetites question, and my aversion towards the picnic in the graveyard, which people in Philadelphia love. Um, like that's, there's events and like really wonderful art that happens in the areas in Philadelphia. But um, we seem to have different ways of engaging with that. And um, I've never been to the Mooner Museum on purpose. And I say this, and I was like waiting to roll it out to you because, um, <laughs> surprise, um, because there's something about it that, um, that sets me on edge, that makes me feel nervous about uh, the displaying of a body for people to see. Um, and, and I know how much respect you come to this work with and, and your background and your experiences in life thinking about like what bodies deserve. Um, and so thinking about dignity and caring for um, the physicality of people after they've died, um, how did you bring that into your work? Um, and how does, how does that play out in the movies? Sure, that's a great question. Um, I, I like to joke that I, I worked with the very dead and now I work with the dying. Um, because part of my job at the Mutter Museum had to do with handling skulls and finding humor ways to put on exhibit. And so I was surrounded by death um, every day, all day. And there was, of course, a certain sense of a distance that happens with any kind of exposure. Um, but there was also um, a profound sense of wonder at the human body, at how we can educate each other about it. And to me, education is kind of the, the priority. Um, and education goes hand in hand with respect. Um, so using these remains to tell a story about this person and perhaps what they were afflicted with um, was the main goal. And that's, that's part of the main mm -hmm. goal of the Buddha is to use um, these people, really. Um, it's kind of a, a visual mausoleum, in a sense, uh, to say, hey, this belonged to a person, this is what they went through in their life. Uh, if we have the life history information, it's there. It's included in the display, and I think that's huge, and I, I hope that that will continue to happen in the future, to see more of it, and part of the, um, the perspective uh, that the museum staff had while I was there and still has, uh, has a lot to do with telling a person's story. Um, the way I see it is that you're not your skull, it, even though we all have one. It's, you know, uh, people go to the Mooder and say, oh, skulls, and I'm like, no, 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 you have one too. That's what's keeping your, your face together. <laughs> so to me, uh, I mean, a lot of it has to do with removing the, the dread and the, the fetishization, actually, of, of, of the skull as a, 
object of, of death and harbinger of death, mm. and something to be afraid of. And my view is just like, this is, this is in you right now. Like, you can touch it in most <laughs> cases. <laughs> um, so if you had, if you had like one ask for people who are here or who are listening to Kaddish, um, what's something that you, you want for us to be thinking about and, and working towards? Um, think about human diversity and human condition and how that can be reflected in your body and how your experiences can be reflected in your body. One of the most um, life-changing moments uh, was in 2006, I took a, a year um, of post-bac after my undergrad, uh, Penn, and I went to the med school and said, hey, I want to grow bodies, I want to be a medical illustrator because that's what I wanted to apply at the time. I didn't realize you had to basically be pre-med to do it. Um, so I took a semester in the gross anatomy uh, lab and human dissections. And it was absolutely mind-blowing and wondrous and spectacular to just see how different we are inside. We're just as different inside as we are on our faces, on our external appearances. It's mm -hmm. amazing. And if you um, extend that to our personalities, it just all a continuum of, I don't want to say uniqueness, but you know, special. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you so, so much for joining us. Let's give a round of applause.
Good evening. Good evening. Uh, thank you so much for being here. It's a pleasure. Uh, so I would love if you would tell us a little bit about yourself and your work, if you could introduce yourself to the studio audience. Sure. I'm Chris Bartlett. I'm a lifetime Philadelphian. A great lover of West Philly. It's uh, great to be out here tonight. And um, I am currently the executive director of the William Way LGBT Community Center. But my whole life has been involved in queer community organizing. And that stemmed from studying classics. I was almost a classics professor, this close. And a couple of friends of mine got sick with HIV in the 90s. And out of that, I dedicated my life to doing AIDS activism first and now queer organizing. And, uh, and as such, I got very deeply in touch with death. Mm -hmm. uh, and so your project, The Gay History Wiki, uh, has been described as a social network for the dead, which is a really compelling tagline. Um, what was the impetus for the project? What made you go from being someone who is watching your friends get sick and die to someone that created this social network for the dead? Yeah, I, w I was actually inspired by Jewish thinking about death. And I had read a lot about the Holocaust and the fact that Jews had made this commitment not to forget a single Jew who had been murdered in the Holocaust. And I thought that was a really powerful idea. And as I was going through so many deaths of my own friends, I thought, what if we as queer people had the same commitment not to forget a single person who had died? And for me, it was sort of the opposite of this idea that if we save a single life, we save the whole world. I began to think, well, if we forget a single life, what does that mean? And so I wanted to think about a way that we could not forget all of these incredible people who did, died of HIV. Mm -hmm. And so to create a social network of the dead, you know, that idea emerged out of Facebook. And I thought, you know, out of all these social media, what if we treated all of our dead people with the same level of respect and love that we treat the live people in our lives? Mm -hmm. So for people who haven't been on the site before, can you describe what it is? Yeah. So. Uh, Early on, I asked this question, how many people died of AIDS in Philadelphia from about 1981 to the present? And I got the number from the health department that was about 9,600 people. And I thought, what if 9,600 people in my network just all of a sudden disappeared and died? Like, what would that invisibility look like? And how would you map that? Uh, so I thought a great way to map it would be a wiki. Because if you started a wiki, you could create a page for every single person and not only would you be able to tell their stories, but other people could come on and began, begin to add on to those stories. And I thought, 9,600, that's a big number. But I could do some number of those, maybe 1,000. Uh, and so I began investigating, pulling out names, going to churches, synagogues, community groups, reading obituaries. And I would literally sit up at night in bed with these names, and I would begin researching them and creating the wiki pages, their birth date, their death date, and as much as I could find. And uh, the most powerful thing I discovered was that so many of these people had died before 1995, which was the year that the new protease inhibitors came on the market and began to save a lot of lives for the people who actually had access to them. Not everyone, but people who had access. So prior to 1995, we had so many deaths. And the other thing about 1995 is it's just before the World Wide Web and the internet takes off. So many of these people had no internet presence. So I suddenly had the insight that not only were we documenting their lives, but we were creating their history on the internet. Mm -hmm. Which, if you think about it now, you don't really have a history if you're not on the internet. <laughs> and so I felt like by creating the Gay History Wiki, we began to document every single one of these lives. And so many of them were powerful, and then people would reach out to me 
uh, mothers, fathers, lovers, friends, and say, I found my brother on your site, and I want to add information about him, and I'm so glad that somebody remembered him. And, uh, and so that's ha happened a bunch of times now that it's began to take on its own momentum. And in fact, many people said, I'd forgotten my friend who died in 1992, and you reminded me of what an important role he played in my life. So it has begun to create this fabric of a social network of the dead, where we can begin to keep those relationships with the same uh, respect that we do our live ones. Mm. And something you said really comes off of what Evie said around um, telling the story of the people that are that we're having the artifacts of, right? So telling the all the information we can about someone um, and owing it to their memory and to owing it to their memory and to and to the people who love them or once love them to to say all that we can. Um, and that feels so related, either curating a museum museum exhibit where you're holding someone's skull or creating a wiki where you're holding someone's memory and maybe you get lucky enough to have a picture, um, which I imagine might sometimes be rare. Yeah. Um, there's this obligation to, to do as much as possible. That yeah. you're, you're like, you, there's water coming in the canoe and you have to just like remember as much as you can before it's too late. It's so right. And I felt this responsibility. I can remember in the late 2000s, 2007, 2008, I'd be in bed with like all this information, stuff I found on the internet, other things I found, I'd be in bed documenting for hours, and it was so fascinating. And I'd hit like midnight, and I'd be like, all right guys, you gotta leave now. Like, it, it literally felt like they were in the room with me. And, and then I had the weight of all those spirits in the room with me. And I'm not a particularly uh, spiritual person in that way, but I did feel like they were there in the room. And, and by documenting them, I was actually creating the ability to be, have them be there with me. Mm -hmm. And so it really has given me the sense, I think in America, horrible generalization about to come, but I think <laughs> in America we tend to throw away our dead. You know, they, they're, they're dead and they're gone and we move on and continue with the live people in our lives. But for me, what this has taught is the power of ancestors mm -hmm. and that we all should have dozens of ancestors whose lives and histories we treasure. And it in fact, uh, makes my own life so much richer to have developed these relationships with these men and women whom otherwise I never would have met. Mm. It also, there's context required for this wiki. Talk, how does the, the AIDS impact the vision for this work? Other artifacts, or other, let's make permanent that which is impermanent, that which is actively being erased. Yeah, that's a great question. I was really inspired by the AIDS world, of course. But what struck me about the AIDS quote is one person created the quote, panel, it was done. There was no adding to the panel. And to me, the power of the wiki was that in eternity now, people can add on, add on photographs, create art, tell new stories. They're not always nice stories. People have come on and said, that person abused me, and I don't think there should be a page for that person. And I would say, well, add on the story of how they abused you. You know, I'm not here to you know, curate what stories get told. Uh, but I think it's been really powerful to you know, recognize that that's part of what this creates, is an ongoing engagement. Whereas the quote's a one-time engagement, the wiki's an ongoing engagement. And there's a power to that, and there, there's also something powerful to just having it done. And I think, you know, one of the things I was inspired about, um, you know, saying the Kaddish, and the power of saying the Kaddish for a year, or however long you say it. Like, to me, in, this, in some ways, this was my way of saying Kaddish sort of revisiting the stories in an ongoing way uh, and, and having it constantly present in my mind and going through a process of grief, even with people I didn't have a relationship with. And I think it's harder with the quote. 
Like you see the quilt, it's more the power of the whole, that you're seeing thousands and thousands of quilt panels and all the depth that that represents. Whereas I feel the wiki is more about the individual. Mm -hmm. What's your hope for this project? Are you still adding to it? We're still adding to it. And uh, I have one of my big hopes is technological, if there are any geeks in the, I'm sure there are geeks in the room, but geeks, <laughs> geeks in the room who could give me some insights about how to take the technology to the next level. Because I wish it were as easy to add people to the site as it is, um, say, to add a friend on Facebook or on Twitter or another social media site. And it's not easy to do it. Mm -hmm. So often I end up helping people to do it, which in some ways allows me to remain in sort of a curator role. But I would love for it to just go off on its own and expand exponentially. And it's really a Philadelphia project now. I do have people reach out and say, I'm from Cleveland, or I'm from, got some folks from San Francisco. I'd like to add my person, and I'm always OK with that. Uh, but to imagine it as a nationwide repository. Mm -hmm. um, and I think we're at this key moment right now, and I think this happens with all trauma. We saw it with the Holocaust. 1976, the teleseries Holocaust came out, which was some 30 years after the end of the Holocaust. You know, now we're about 30 years past the beginning of the AIDS epidemic. I think we're reaching this point where people are able to come to terms. And the one thing I've learned from speaking to many men and women who lived through the worst of the trauma, and I include myself among them, is that we're not always the ones to do it. Sometimes it's a new generation who are ready to come, really interested to dive into the archaeology and talk to people like me, uh, but sort of re relieve me of the pressure of reliving the trauma myself. Mm. Uh, so it's my way of saying I would love to have a new generation of folks who dive into this and say, wow, I want to I want to be the one who documents every single person who died in Philadelphia. And that's hard work because a lot of people were below the radar. They didn't have an obituary. They might not have even had a religious service. So the level of commitment to make sure that we didn't forget a single person. And I, in some ways, am more interested by the people who fell beneath the radar, like sort of the everyday folks uh, who were forgotten either because their families wanted to forget them uh, or for other reasons. And I'll just tell an interesting story because I think serendipities happen for reasons. And somebody reached out to me just yesterday and said, do you know there's an AIDS memorial in Philadelphia on East River Drive, which is Kelly Drive for people who don't know the old name? Um, and I said, I didn't know there was an AIDS memorial. He said, well, it's there. And I'd like you to come help me find it. And I want to sort of find a way to move this AIDS memorial into Center City. And it doesn't say anything about AIDS on it. It says, Hill for Hope on the, on the stone. So we went today, and we found the stone. And sure enough, there it was, the stone. But all that was left was sort of very faint lines of Hill for Hope. And you could see there, was ins there were inscriptions that used to be beneath that. But they're unreadable at this point. And I just thought, I was told this memorial was created in the 80s at a time where you couldn't put the word AIDS on a memorial because that would terrify people too much, or it would cause too much shame, or the Fairmount Park Commission wouldn't allow it. Um, so to me, I thought, you know, that's what we're fighting against allowing the stones to become invisible. You know, if you think of the gravestones of Holocaust survivors in Eastern Europe, where the stones have been etched away by the weather and by decades of uh, lack of protection, I feel like we have a responsibility to find you know, those stones and make sure that the names are visible, that the stories are visible, and that that's what the work is for. Mm -hmm. I hear you using the, the story of the trauma of the Holocaust and, and, and hear how much it, it moved you for this this demand to remember. Um, and something that I've noticed in hearing the stories of people all year, and I hope far into the future around grief, is that we have this um, desire to either downplay or, um, or find credit 
to say that my grief is worth hearing, mm -hmm. um, or to say, oh, my like my story, like it's sad, but it's not as bad as like it could have been so much worse. And I'm curious about that. I'm curious that talking about uh, about the show, about the Holocaust, um, in the context of the AIDS epidemic um, and people who are still dying of HIV and AIDS, um, if if that relationship. Um, if you if it feels like there's no other way to talk about mass death mm. that like some people like people here might like be able to tap into like does the am I being clear does the mm. do you feel like you need to when you hear people talk about the HIV epidemic at its height do you think that we pull on stories of the Holocaust to give more legitimacy mm. to the theme of what was happening in the epidemic yeah I think that for me. Uh, I'm not a believer in light analogies, so I'm cautious. Mm. But I think part of my work definitely emerged, I, I sort of consider myself a convert to secular Judaism, if that makes any sense to anyone. So, you got the right crowd. <laughs> yeah. So I'm really interested in Jewish culture, what it has to teach to queer culture, and vice versa. I think it, and, and there's such an overlap between queerness and Jewishness anyway. Uh, so I came at it from that perspective, both a deep respect for the lessons of the Shoah and recognizing that they're very unique. Mm -hmm. And then thinking about, you know, what do we have to learn? And I do feel that there's something to be said about intergenerational trauma and some of the research we're seeing now that shows the way that trauma is passed on, even if you didn't live through the trauma yourself, that it lives on in you either genetically or chemically or behaviorally or however it happens. And I see that in gay communities. I see in my own generation of gay men, you know, so much trauma unexpressed, so much pain unexpressed. And then I see it in a new generation of gay men who really didn't live uh, through the same level of trauma I did. So, you know, I think that there are very interesting parallels to look at. And I do feel like coming to terms with death, and uh, I really appreciate what Evie said, sort of having a humorous respect for it, which is how I look at it. Like, uh, sort of coming to love death and imagine, you know, what a community transition looks like from youth to adult to elder to ancestor. And then in a sense, you learn to step into the next roles from somebody who teaches you. So as an adult, you become you can become an elder or you can become an older, in, in my point of view. And if you're an older, no one really taught you how to become an elder. And the elder has more of a responsibility to the community or culture he or she or they is a part of. Uh, and then as an elder, to imagine I'm going to become an ancestor who's powerful and that I'm going to be the sort of ancestor who people still engage with. And, even after my body leaves this earth, people are gonna still be engaging with me and my ideas and my thinking. And then I wanna study ancestors like Leslie Feinberg or Eric Rofus, you know, who inspired me and who are dead now, but who still continue to live on so powerfully uh, from what they taught me. So it's sort of a very roundabout way to say that I do think that queers need to learn what they can from the Holocaust, um, not draw a facile analogy and say that what we lived through is at all alike, or and you know, looking at where the similarities are, uh, but then as both queers and Jews, taking those lessons to face the new traumas that no doubt are going to face us uh, as we live on. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, the the act of speaking aloud someone's name is so profoundly political, and we're being called on in the past two years, three years, by Black Lives, the movement for Black Lives to actually speak aloud the names of people who are being killed whose deaths aren't public. Um, and this this exposure, this 
uh, holding someone's skull in your hand, this, this making a web page for um, someone or building a movement around the names of people. Um, there's a, a sense of exposure um, that's interesting to me and uh, um, ways in which internalized homophobia make, uh, make it so that we want to actually get small um, or that racism makes it so that like getting small is the easiest answer um, and getting big and saying names and, and remembering um, is a political act in and of itself. Um, and something I wanted to ask you about is um, do you feel that the, the wiki that you've created does it have that snowball effect where it's uh, hubs of people, so that it's people in the same communities or demographics that are all remembered? Or have you um, been able to speak names from a variety of demographics in Philadelphia um, who have died from AIDS? Yeah, that's a great question. One of the things I really consciously did was think about different communities that could be represented. So I reached out to many black gay men who, you know, there was just a huge number of deaths because the access was to healthcare was much less and uh, and plug, being plugged into community was much more difficult because of institutional racism. And to hear those stories, is things that I never would have predicted, especially I learned so much about dance culture and the way that these incredible black gay choreographers had acted as ins inspirational mentors to a whole generation of black gay leaders who were then fighting the AIDS epidemic. Um, there was something about the dance world that created this possibility for leadership. So there were many, many black gay choreographers and dancers part of that, and uh, also folks in the world of fashion. I don't know if people know Willie Smith, who was an incredible black gay uh, fashion artist who uh, you know, became world-renowned, who, who died in the late 80s. Uh, so really beginning to celebrate in particular black gay culture was very important to me. Uh, as I mentioned, I went to as many synagogues and churches and mosques as I could to get names there, which was not always easy work to do. Uh, I went to the funeral home that buried all of the folks in the early days before anyone would. And the guy, uh, Ron Pizzelli, who manages his funeral home, he didn't care if you were uh, Jewish or Christian or Muslim. He, he buried everyone. And he figured out how to do the rituals so he could do that. Um, and one of the powerful things about his story is that he was really committed to doing that in a very affordable way uh, so that anyone could get a nice ritual end to their life. And oftentimes their families didn't show up. He just made sure this was done uh, so that they were treated respectfully. Uh, so one of the ways that I subcategorized within the wiki are all those connections. Were they a member of ACT UP Philadelphia? Were they a member of Congregation Beth Ahava? Uh, were they a member of Action Aids? Um, you know, a huge thing is the leather community. Uh, leather community really carefully documented the gay men who died of AIDS within that community, and that was inspiring. Another group who very carefully documented this is a group called Black and White Men Together, now Men of All Colors Together. Uh, they really made a point to make sure there was an AIDS quote for everyone in that organization who died. So it was interesting to me also to pay attention to which subgroups in the community did make a point of really acknowledging their dead. Lastly, I'm, I'm, I'm curious to, to even how you hold your work with the living together with your work with the dead. So you, you know, close up shop, you go home, you open up your laptop, you're sitting in bed, everyone comes in the room, all of these ghosts mm. and memories are there, mm. and you're working, and then go to bed, you wake up, and then you go to work, and you're with the living, and you're doing doing what for them. Um, it sounds, one, it sounds like you're always on. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. And two, um, how do you hold together these two such different poles, sets of questions, sets of needs. 
That's a great question too. I feel that um, you know, I was blessed very early on from by having these incredible mentors, some of whom died, some of whom still alive, and who taught me both how to have a sustainable activist life for decades. And part of that was building this network of community of people who I knew had my back and who when I fell, and I'd fallen many times, would help me up again and you know, were invested in making sure that I did survive for the long term. And I think part of that was having a really careful sense of the ancestors in that. So Kiyoshi Kuramiya, who was one of my great mentors who died in 2000, um, you know, pulled me aside at one point before he died and he said, you're a very nice guy. Don't let them beat that out of you. Now, that's still in my head. Like, at times when I want to be a real evil and effort. You know, <laughs> I hear Kiyoshi's voice. You're a really nice guy. Don't let them beat it out of you. And so I have, I think, many mentor voices of ancestors who still speak to me, and I can hear their voices. I think that's been really powerful for me to still, still be able to... Dominic Bash, who is a, a gay activist who started out uh, uh, studying to become a Catholic seminarian, then became a hairdresser, and then ended up confronting uh, the cardinal in Philadelphia and throwing condoms at him and you know, insisting that the Catholic Church care about gay men and the lives of people living with AIDS. I can still hear his shrieking voice uh, you know, when I'm doing my activism out in the street. So this is, of course I can't give all the answers to how I don't burn out, although I have. I think that's, it's okay to burn out at times, but to have the community of support who are there to lift you up uh, is a big part of that. And I think for me, creating this fabric that includes young people, adults, elders, and ancestors, and making sure that I'm always replenishing those different categories. So as the young people graduate up into adulthood, if they do, they don't always do, um, or if the uh, adults graduate up to elderhood, if they do. And I love those older people who are still young people, you know, the 70-year-olds who are still on the disco floor dancing. Um, you know, that all this is independent of age. It just has to do with, you know, what category you see yourself in that I've created a community that can't really be taken away from me, especially the ancestors. Uh, the dead people are a really important part of that. Thank you so much for joining us. And now we are lucky enough to hear a little bit of poetry. Uh, so, Noor, I invite you on up. I'm going to introduce you. Um, Noor Jaber is a black and Arab American queer trans poet who writes to survive. They are also a pink door, watering hole, and Hallelujah fellow, and their friends Tata. Their work is hot like a tater tot and appears in a drunk and appears in drunk and in a midnight choir, winter tangerine, the black napkin, crab fat, was good, yes, and max for tea. Noor, thank you so much for being here. I'll leave you to it, but thank you so much for reading some poetry. Yeah, thank you. Thank you so much for having me here. Um, I'm going to read three short pieces from my chapbook, which is called Sovereign Ancestral. And what I was trying to do with this book was um, I, w I divided into two sections. One is called Blood Offering, and one is called Blood Memory. Um, and the first section is an offering up of my identity, and the second part is an exploration of how ancestry ties into and is in tension with perpetually my identities. So um, 
the first one, first short piece, is called Trance. A woman makes me come into her hand. I fear she holds my name now. When she touches me, I breathe like I'm pulling smoke. We are sweet things on fire. Tonight, we smudge the bed with lavender. Char until perfume burns bitter. Our bodies aren't conquests. Here, we give hips and lips, offerings to needy gods, but the headboard is watching. I think my family got its eye on me. I think they snarling moonlight onto our backs. We inherit their skin, like antiques gold. With all its contradicting histories, the way we were queer before queer needed a name, the way our bodies were conquests of an alien love, the way our grandmothers watching from the headboard must be spitting blood, as if to remind us who we are. Having forgotten where they came from, my grandmothers hold a holy Bible and the Quran. I think their grandmothers worship more earthly things. I worship the give of a woman's thigh against my teeth. The dead speak in gold. Voices flash down my arms. Jewelry when the light ricochets. I take my bangles off before we fuck. I build my mouth into an unapologetic altar, banish the witnesses, but still I carry ashes of my grandmother's hands. Pen the same, cotton pricked, spilling from my pockets as she undresses me. The dust will linger, scattered and still, till we're done. Thank you. Um, the second piece is based off of an actual surah or verse from the Quran, um, which is called Surah Al-Kafirun, which means uh, the verse of the non-believers. And it's funny because like the verse is really just like kind of like chilling and atheists alone and people who are Muslims alone. But a lot of people will take like, as people do in a lot of organizations, take it out of context. Um, so I wrote my own version. Surah <laughs> Al-Kafirun. Bismillah, my mouth is a bucket and my body is a well. So holy and full of God, there was no choice but to burst and overflow, meaning I think the Lord matched rivers in my stretch marks. I think worship was just me grasping for a map I couldn't read. I still carry worship in my bones. I carry God kept somewhere in my ribs, not my heart. God lives in my marrow. I have learned my mother tongue from the Quran, meaning I have learned how to pray and sin in Arabic, so yes, there are skeletons in my language, and yes, that makes this language a closet. It's so easy to hide things in the shadows. Once I tried to hang myself from a closet door, no metaphor, that night God swung. A lynch skeleton, all the fruits flesh fallen from the sea. He was a river of ribs spilling from a mother tongue closet I finally waded out of, and now when I speak, my voice rattles like bones, meaning prayer beads. Meaning when I speak, I'm usually praying, even if it doesn't sound like it. Meaning when I speak God's name, it is a prayer for rain, and Allah is a skeleton sown in the soil of my own language. Alhamdulillah. Mashallah. Inshallah. Ya Rabb, without a thought of God, I say his name every day, every day. I bite over my bones and weigh the marrow. I'm, learning, I'm looking again for God inside my body, learning again to pray. To open my mouth wide, wet, and grasping my mouth a holy threat of overflow, my mouth, a bursting knot, my mouth, a graveyard, a river, my mouth, a closet. Emmy. Thank you. Um, the final piece I'm going to read is a, a form I made up called A Colonial Fit. 
Um, so it, it's annoying because like, it requires you to be at least a little bit bilingual. Um, but I like it because what I do is I take the colonized language, which in my case is Arabic, but it could be any language that's colonized by someone, and, um, take, and then take the, the grammar and the logic of this language and put it into the lexicon and the vocabulary of the colonizing language, which for me is English, but it could be French, could be you know, Spanish, whatever. Um, so I take these and I make them, I make them incompatible by putting them into each other. So. This is a colonial fit I wrote for a Syrian girl, but it has um, an epigraph which is in standard English. For a Syrian girl, colonial fit number two. Death does not change the ways we love each other. Love's language is rooted in our genes. Death's language is carved into our tongues. Death does not change the ways we love each other. Love does not change the ways we die. I call you Yahyat because no, I know name of you. Have you face of daughter or uncle of me? Can I, I imagine you, being you, hold hand of me, the little and the brown? Can I, I taste lemonade of mint, like sun fresh under tongue of me? Were we in Halab yesterday? Were we in Aleppo since years long? Not it make laugh what does the time with the borders of us, the weak and the petty. I see face of you. Like if the tears that they drench body of father of you, those the tears left from eyes of you today. Now, not since years long, must I, I tell you, has he face of all uncles of me? There's thing familiar in face Arab washed it in the tears, in face Arab waterboarded it in the grief. It looks like all the family of me. Please, let me, I hold you like promise. What promise can I, I make from across this to diaspora? Not screamed I like you, never. Not swallowed childhood of me in a sky unforgiving, never. I love the mother country of me with blood of her in throat of me. With blood of you and blood of me in the throat, I call you Yahayat, perhaps because not can I, I save life of you. Blood of me swallowed in blood of you. Made I spill of oil from lineage of me.
Thanks so much to Noor, Evie, Rachel, Evan, Chris, Dan for their performances and interviews on this episode. A million thank yous to our producer extraordinaire, Alex Stern. Thanks to Chelsea Noriega for our site design, Clara Lefton for transcription, Jay Brager for graphics, Sid Weissman for big dream support, and the Jewish Federation of Greater Hartford. Thank you to the Reconstructionist Rabbinical College. Thank you to everyone who donated to the fundraiser, shared Kaddish with a friend, or connected to the show. I'm Ariana Katz, and this is Kaddish. Kaddish.